Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know, with Black Lives Matter, we've had a big call for Black-oriented plays and for embracing people who may not have typically been raised with theater as part of their their everyday life, right? And to say that we want to welcome people. We need to talk about songs. Somebody has to make conversation. People talk while dancing. Hey everybody, it's Bob Ost. We're back again every week. I think this is week 89. 89 almost consecutive meetings that we've done in our community room here. Our Zoom community gathering, which we created to give people a sense of community during a, the pandemic and the shutdown and when everybody was in isolation. So we've been doing this for quite a while. It's the only consecutives that we missed were Christmas and New Year's. So I can't legitimately say it's been 89 consecutive weeks. It's been 89 consecutive weeks except for a couple. So we're here. We're, we're ready to uh, keep our conversations going. It looks like we're in decline. Omicron is in a distinct, definite decline in New York. So there seems to be a possibility that we're going to finally get rid of COVID, or at least rid of the COVID that is forcing us to stay isolated and masked and all that. So guys, I think we really see a, new, a normal back on the, in, the, uh, in the future. So yay for us. Yay for everybody that's done the right thing and vaccinated and and boosted and masked and kept healthy and kept safe. Thank you all. Uh, thank us all for, for doing it. We've done a good deed for the planet and for the rest of the population. I guess I don't have to scold the people that, that don't mask and are anti-vaxxers as much as I wanted to scold them earlier. It was driving a lot of us crazy that we were all stuck in this and it just seemed... Like it would have helped a lot if the people that were denying vaccines and not masking and not being safe, if they had made different choices, can't help thinking it would have ended a little sooner. Uh, so the conversation has been, how do you stay creative in a shutdown? How do you Zoom? What in the hell is virtual? <laughs> and, and how do you do it? We've gone through 89 weeks of this, so obviously we've covered a lot of ground. Today... I'm so happy to have a, a, a friend and a, a, a wonderful guy as our guest. I think the room has already said that <laughs> the, this is the Jim Kirstead fan club. So I'm definitely part of the Jim Kirstead fan club. We're going to talk a little bit about what he's done during, I and mean, I called I called it what I what I did last summer, how Jim Kirstead stayed productive during a pandemic. So Jim, I'm going to bring you in and. I'm going to try to get you to talk and me to stop. Uh, oh, don't worry. I'll, I'll talk all right. <laughs> You'll have to shut me up. Um, well, first of all, Bob, thank you so much for inviting me. It's always great to see you and be a part of your, your fabulous group. It was so nice to see all those really friendly faces, some of them really great friends and a lot of people who I've you know known through you over these years. And I want to thank everybody for being here today because it's, it's super appreciated that you would uh, take your time on a Friday night to be here and and listen to what we're going to say. So hopefully we'll say something that's that's worth your time. Yeah, you know, I think everything you say is so important, Bob. And I think that now that we're on to almost two years, right? It's almost two years since our shutdown in March. And I think people may know this, but I'm just going to go quickly through, you know, what happened with the pandemic for me. I mean, I had a number of shows that were on Broadway and a number of shows that were about to open. And all of a sudden it went from everything to nothing immediately. So after about two weeks of sitting there, you know, like everybody else was quarantined and sitting there watching too much Netflix and probably drinking too many martinis and ordering too much takeout and not seeing enough people um, and missing theater terribly, I decided I wanted to figure out what I could do during that time. So the first year 
And this is where, you know, I really want to focus on what this last year has been like. But the first year when we really didn't do anything, right, we we're all scared to death that we were going to die um, or some horrible thing was going to happen to us. I created this company called Broadway Virtual. And we had so many weird things going on that year, really groundbreaking and strange and scary things happening that year. One of them, the pandemic, the other one was, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, where all that came to the surface and all the pent up. Um, you know, just being discouraged and, and angry and, and frustrated about what was going on there. And we had all this extra time to think about it, that that all bubbled to the surface. And then we had our election that we dealt with at the end of the year. So that was like one heck of a year. We got just like, bam, 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 the whole year. And, and, how, so, the heck, and how the heck did we ever get from Black Lives Matter to voting, voting rights being denied people around our country right now? How do we get to that? Yeah, yeah, it's terrible. Well, you know, we have people who's who um, it wasn't fashionable for them to say those things over the years. It was kind of very underground. And I think that, you know, we had an administration that brought all that to the surface and everybody was very comfortable to be racist and prejudiced and fill in all the other things. And all of a sudden people really had this um, this voice where they may not have had that before. So in, in a way, I mean, it's in a way it's horrible, but in a way it really shed light on what was really going on in the American public and at large. And we, you know, we're so isolated in a way, like a lot of us, if, uh, for those of you who live in uh, Manhattan, right? <laughs> we're, we're a pretty blue left-leaning area. And if you are in the other areas like that, you don't really get exposed to the people who have those different thoughts. But I think that with this last year, with the last couple of years, we've really gotten to see all those different different sides. And it was kind of surprising actually, because we tend to think people are like us by and large. And then we realized that they're not, especially when people were suffering terribly. You know, I mean, it, it's a, not to go off topic too much, but I think that what was so interesting is that there were some people who were thriving during the pandemic. And there were some people who were absolutely in the worst shape that they've ever been. And certainly a lot of people in our community, the theater community was decimated. And a lot of these folks who had to rely on being on the front lines of something and they could no longer do that, they were they were in serious trouble. And then there were people who um, were providing goods and services and working from home and feeling comfortable that they actually may have done better than they ever did before. So it was just really strange that the um, the rift went even further. So it made all of those, those aggravations, all the, you know, because nobody had anything to do. So it just brought all of these frustrations to the surface. Um, the thing that I find so challenging, and I think it's, it's crucial, is finding some way of, of reaching across um, so that we can come to some, some kind of mutual understanding. But it, it, it's it frustrating to us with, with our, our point of view, our positions, to see people that are we think are being a little insensitive to uh, lots of areas of our population. I, I hadn't really thought that today was going to get this pit political, but it just neither not so fast at least. Lots of <laughs> it's it's any time. Let's just, I mean, I'll you know I'll say two words to just make me want to jump out a window, Joe Manchin. Um, but beyond that, let let's talk about how the politics and how what's going on in our country is may or may not be shaping what's going on in theater. Do you, do you, do you see it being reflected in theater? Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, just to bring it back to the most obvious things, um, you know, with Black Lives Matter, we've had a big call for black oriented plays and for embracing people who may not have typically been raised with theater as part of their, their, everyday life, right? And to say that we want to welcome people um, into the theater. I mean, I'm on the board of several not-for-profit theaters in New York, and I know when Black Lives Matter came and everybody really started to talk about it, I don't think anybody in our community, I mean, I would, I would like to go out on a limb and say this. I'd like to go and say that I feel like the theater community has always traditionally been a very warm and outreaching and embracing group of people. You know, it's like, I don't think that people intentionally have tried to exclude people. But then we come into, you know, the last couple of years and shedding the light on who we are and what we're doing and what's been going on for so many years. Do we have to say, well, maybe it's not just enough that we don't exclude people, right? That don't exclude, that's kind of like a, it's sort of a passive way of involving yourself. 
but maybe we have to actually go out and actively cultivate and actively bring people in. And unfortunately, in the beginning, um, you know, there were a lot of well-meaning but misguided situations where people would say, oh, wow, I have to bring, we have to bring black people on our board. I'm just going to say that in the most basic way, right? They'd say like, board of a theater, we don't have any black people, let's go find black people to come on the board. And there was a lot of like, we have to do that. And I, my, my reaction was always like, who are the people? I mean, it's like, we've never, nobody's ever said, we don't want black people on the board. That's just not anything that was ever happening though, for the most part. I mean, sure, there are definitely black people in theater, but it's a, it's a small amount in New York theater. You know, I can pick, I know who they are and they're friends. And what we ended up doing was like, you really have to look at that and say, well, nobody's been actively excluded but now you just can't go and randomly drag people in off the street and say well, you we do, want. But I think you do have to act, actively and consciously in, uh, include people. You have to. No, no, no. But look, that's you, that's you not what look, I'm saying. Yeah. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not. I'm saying you can't just like look for random people to bring no. in. You have to go and say, I want to introduce you to what we do here. You may not have done this before, like many of us maybe have been doing this for a lot of years. So we have to go and really start to say hey, would you like to be part of what we're doing? And we want to bring you in, but maybe like to get used to what a, the board is at a theater. Maybe that's not something that people would know. And to, to start to really go and, and introduce people to the way a not-for-profit theater works. And I don't think that that's randomly going after people. I think that that's specifically saying, like, we want to work with a diverse group of people. And that's, and that's what I think that we've been starting to do now. I think it took a little while to figure that out. But I think that people are now saying like, how can we have an incubator, right? And that doesn't just go for board members, that goes for all the people in theater. It goes for stage managers. I mean, we've always had, we've always had actors who were diverse, right? Cause that's always something that that's been on the forefront. But as far as people behind the scenes, like general managers, directors, choreographers, you know, there's, it's, it's not been something that is as clear to the entry path. So, well, to, be, to, to be honest, there also there were also are some studies that indicate that although we are we are welcoming to to actors, BIPOC actors, the the percentage that are represented in commercial Broadway theater um, has been has been lacking, uh, surprising us. But it's, it turns out that they have been lacking. There's especially a special problem with with Asian actors. The, the parts for Asian actors are, are very very rare. The, you know, it's so it's so it's so ironic. Do you know ne next week's panel is called "Is the Great White Way Getting a Little Less White?" And I thought, and we're having this we're having this discussion today already. Next week I've got Adam Hyman and Tara Moses coming from the um, Broadway for Racial Justice. I think it's called. Mm -hmm. um, these are issues that are very very much in our consciousness right now and uh, and I, I understand why we've, we've we've drifted into a conversation about race and, and equity and equality yeah and I mean it, it we kind of got into it because we're talking about this last summer or the last couple of summers right so it was it would be hard to not say that that was such an important part of that you know and for Absolutely. me um you know, I've I've always been a fan of of diversity. I mean, I have like a lot of Asian people who I work with. I work with a lot of people from China, and I did a show called Thrill Me, the Leopold and Loeb Story in uh, 2005 off Broadway at the York Theater Company. That's when I ended up going on their board, and that's been now in Korea for like the past like 14 years. It's been in Japan for like seven years, and now it's in China for the third year. That reminds me, though, a friend of mine emailed me to say that she has a letter that she got from Loeb to her father who was i think a teacher of his or something and she was wondering whether you would be interested in seeing the letter that she that her father oh absolutely 100 percent. that would That's be incredible yeah thank you i'd love to see that i would love to see that there's a great production in london right now in fact it's getting incredible reviews um so we're hoping that's actually going to move. I mean, Thrill Me has been around for for so long now. But anyway, the Asian population. So I have this really con this really interesting connection with the Asian theater goers for like you know going on 15 years now, just because of that show. And now I've been working with, in Miami with the Latinx community. So I just I mean, not to flash forward too far, but this past summer, as far as what I did last summer was, I did um, a film down in Miami this summer, and it's in Spanglish. So. I was working with the Cubans and um, you know people from the Latin community to do that. Didn't your company also do a series of short pieces that, that some of them include in, involved um, 
BIPOC actors. I know I saw a couple things. Yeah, hundred percent. So like that was what one of the things that I did during not this summer, but the summer before when we were in lockdown. So I teamed up with my company, Broadway Virtual. I was working with Broadway On Demand and they brought me on to create a masterclass series with them. So I executive produced a masterclass series of 25, 10 to 15 minute little segments. And I cast it, I cast it with, um, it was like five directors, five producers, five actors new to New York, um, five casting directors, and five oh my gosh something technicians maybe amazing group yeah no it was like it was producers um directors casting people actors and the other the other one slips my own i'll come up with it but it was like five groups of five and i really worked to cast it in the most ethnically and you know racially diverse way that i possibly could so they all went down and, you know, it was so fun because initially it was like July of 2020 and everybody was locked down and I was reaching out to all these folks saying, hey, I know it's the middle of the pandemic. Would you be willing to do an interview down in, on the Bowery at this uh, OS studios down there? And would you be willing to physically go in there and we're going to social distance and we're going to do all the COVID compliance and come in there and be alone in a camera and come up with these uh, these masterclass series for Broadway and Demand. And I was kind of thinking I'm going to have a lot of backlash with that. And they everybody wanted to get out of their apartments so badly. And they were so happy to do something live that was in a controlled environment and safe that like every single person did it. Like I mean, some people couldn't do it just because of timing, but, but every single person did it. And nobody said they wouldn't do it because of COVID. So that was released in the fall of uh, 2020. And we got nominated for an Emmy Award for that, actually, for Best Educational Series. So that's on Broadway On Demand right now. But that so was- rem- remind me, of, because maybe I'm, my time frame is confused right now. So it, sure. in the fall of 2020, when you were doing this, we were at a point where, where, you, where you could, or was it just, was it because it was in Florida? Is this something that you could have done here? That was in New York. Oh, it was in New York. York. Yep, it was down the Bowery. Yep, it was in a, it was in a, um, a recording studio down the Bowery. And they had COVID precautions then. I, it's it's funny. I, I thought that all of 2020 was lost, but you but you saying did, it was. But the reason it was we could do it, it wasn't theater. It wasn't an equity thing. It was just a theater thing in general. So we were able to go in there and we followed these really careful COVID precautions. We had a COVID marshal. They didn't have it called the COVID compliance officer like it is now. It's called the COVID marshal. And they basically did what the COVID compliance officer does. I just did the class because I'm going to be executive producing two workshops in the month of um, the end of February and into March with the York Theatre Company. Um, and, you know, I need to get COVID compliance people. So I said, if I'm going to bring these people on, I want to know what they're doing so we can have a meaningful plan together. I didn't want to just rely on these other people to come up with the plan. I wanted to know myself, even though I'm pro- I won't be the one to execute it. But I ended up doing the class and it was super informative. But back then in 2020, people, there were a very limited number of people who had already gone through this training. So it was, you go, you walk in the door. The first thing is you take the temperature. You ask if you have any symptoms, if you've been around anybody who was exposed to COVID, and then you bring them in and the person who was responsible for enforcing social distancing and wearing a mask and all the things. So it was, it was a really interesting thing. And I think that the people there felt very safe. It was a big open air place. There was great social distance. Nobody was near each other at all. The camera person was way far away from the person being interviewed. So it was, um, it was in a really controlled environment. So we spent, we spent about two weeks doing those recordings down there and then they got edited in time for the fall um, when they were released on Broadway and event. Let's take a step backward. Let's talk about when you, you decided to create a, a virtual production company and what you knew before and what you had to find had to learn really fast. Absolutely, absolutely. So for me, you know, it's so funny. Years ago, I worked for a company. Many years ago, I was the IT director for um, a company that sold fasteners, like screws, nuts, and bolts. So my original schooling is computer science. So I have a master's degree in computer science from way back when. And nobody in the fastener business wanted to hear about computers until the internet came around, right? So I was doing it long before the internet. So nobody wanted to hear about fasteners from computer people and nobody from computers wanted to hear about fasteners until the internet. And then everybody wanted to hear about computers and I was the guy. So I was like helping all these people with their computers because they just wanted to surf the web. They didn't care about having a computer or anything else except for going on the internet. So 
So flash forward, when it came time for this, nobody in theater ever really wanted to hear about computers and IT, and nobody in IT, for the most part, wanted to hear about theater until the pandemic. Because then all of a sudden, everybody was really interested in getting themselves set up and doing the video conferencing and recording. So I was able to create this company, Broadway Virtual, because I had an IT background, but also I'm a theater producer. So I was able to put those two things together. And I tried to jump in there. I said, what can I do with this time that's going to be helpful, right? So I started doing all of these um, virtual recordings and virtual readings and benefits and whatnot for the not-for-profit. So we did NAMPT that year. We did uh, Broadway Inspirational Voices. I ended up doing the Writers Guild Award that year. We did a whole series for the Roundabout, a bunch of other things. And I had to learn really fast about a video conferencing and the best method to do those um, those types of recordings and those readings on Zoom and whatnot. In the beginning, right, everybody was like, we have to do Zoom. We have got to get out there. And I was like, we do. But you learn real fast that you could do it well or you could do it really badly. And the first couple trial and error ones you do, you realize that people were on their Wi-Fi. They were, the connection was dropping. You'd lose them in the middle of the thing. You know, just like if we were on a, on a regular Zoom call, there would be people who would just be freezing up and it would be a problem. Well, now you've got all these people on, you know, from all over the place watching this live reading and there's people dropping and freezing up and it was a, it was a hot mess. So I had to come up with best practices, right? So it was like, wire, wire yourself into the router directly with a wire, don't do Wi-Fi. Um, you know, let's look at a light. Let's figure out the best way to be. Let's use household equipment. So I put together this whole process within Broadway Virtual, and I had a technical director, and I had a, a virtual stage manager I came up with. And, you know, people who were stage managers weren't necessarily the people who were going to be the virtual stage manager because you had to be able to be adept at using the using Zoom. And what we ended up realizing is, Zoom was a great way to bring everybody together, but that was not the way to record it. And that was not the way to show the benefit. So unless you were going to do a really quick and let's go back. Thing. Let's go back to stage stage manager. Let's yes, because one of the things that come, has come up a lot over the past two years is what are the, what are the job job descriptions uh, on Zoom? My my assumption is that we we finally figured out that the stage manager on Zoom needed to have technical ability. But you're saying that you that you're separating between stage manager and the technician? I, I separated in the beginning, especially because it was like the wild, wild west, because there were people who are, were already part of a project and they had no technical knowledge whatsoever, right? So if there was a stage manager already attached to a project, I couldn't very well say, fire your stage manager. We need somebody who can figure out how to run this stuff, right? So for me, for my company, I was able to kind of come in and fill in the gaps of what anybody needed in order to do their work, right? So we came in with a team and if somebody already had a stage manager, if they had a director, if they had, you know, fill in the blank, whatever the role was, we would say, great, you have that person, but we have to have this in order to do a good job of doing the recording and the editing eventually. So I would be able to bring somebody who would be able to handle all the technical elements and in doing the technical elements, we would always have beforehand, we would have our technical manager meet with each of the actors, each of the people who's going to be on camera. And I had a form, there was a whole form they'd have to fill out and it would say like, do you have a green screen? Do you have a camera? Do you know how to use this camera to record? Do you know how to use Dropbox? You know, we'd go through the whole thing with them. And there were some people who were very technically adept and there were other people who never did it before at all. So we really had to be able to match what we were offering to the skill set of each of the people part of the project. And that's what we did. And by having that upfront um, consultation with each person, we were able to really kind of fit our, our um, services to whatever was needed. So we that, would that's be actually, It's actually what we're doing right now with the seven plays in our, in our, in our um, benefit. We're Absolutely. trying to make matches between the play, the director, which we we included technologists. Uh, we want to include a technologist from the start, but we've been having a hard time finding all the technologists that we need for this because it's seven pieces, and yeah. because it's on a time a close time frame, one seven to ten minute pieces is about all uh, one person would have to do. So, mm -hmm. but we it's hard to give it give out um, seven pieces to one person. It's a lot of work. Uh, there's a lot more work involved in doing this t well on on in virtual than it would be necessarily if we're doing things live. 
hundred percent. It's so much more work. Well, when we did NAMP, right? I mean, we were working like, and, and, you know, a couple of them had maybe four or five people. There were some people, there were some NAMP things that we did. There were like 20 people in the show. So we were, I had I, I, Your NAMP came out as DAM, D-A-M-N. Yeah, it was a NAMP, N-A-M-T, Arlene. <laughs> yeah, it was, we had a great time, but it was a lot. I mean, we spent like five weeks. It was supposed to be like three and a half weeks. And because of the timing and the scheduling, and there were a couple of the groups who needed extra time. So we ended up going over. They, I mean, it wasn't because of us. It was because of the scheduling of the groups and whatnot. But we ended up going over by a week and a half. And then when we did it, we had to get it all into them. And we had to make sure that the footage, it, it became a film job, really. And if people weren't ready to do that process, like if you didn't understand what that process was for an editor and how to prepare the footage, how to prepare the takes for an editor, like you were just dead in the water because there was no way you'd be able to find all the takes and know how to put them together. So that's what we did. And then we were able to provide it for an editor speaking the film language, but also speaking the theater language. So it was it was quite a process. And it was also, we had to educate people who didn't know how to do this before. That was a real interesting undertaking for us. I'm going to ask you a tricky question. This is this came up last week. It comes up a lot. When you do something, when you do a theater piece on uh, virtually, and it's not live, is it still theater? Well, I mean, I guess that's a that's a great question. I mean, it depends how you're judging the piece, right? So, like, if it's a play. And you're treating it like a like a play rather than a movie, um, and you just happen to be pre- presenting it in a different medium. I mean, we were choosing to believe that it was virtual theater because that's the intent of it. We weren't really trying to make a movie. We were just taking the theater piece and, and making it so we could stream it or get it out there for archival and just sharing it with people. But yeah, I understand your point. It's but but I think that you know the takeaway that I had, and you know, not to even belabor that whole topic for too long. But what I came away with was, and it goes back to our our BIPOC conversation before, is that we've always had boundaries that would prevent people from enjoying theater. Unlike film, right? It's not that hard to get Netflix. Most people can see movies. But seeing theater is really hard. It's geographic boundaries because we're spoiled. We live in New York or hopefully people visit here on this group but we probably have theater in our lives somewhere. Um, there's touring companies, there's all that all over the world, but you know, we're, we're a geographically um, centric kind of a institution, kind of an art form. So that keeps people from seeing theater. And then money keeps people from seeing theater. It's expensive, right? A Broadway show is not cheap and it's not cheap going anywhere else, this live performance. So I always like the idea of thinking that you can film something and share that with people who may not normally get to see it. And actually, you know, we've had this, this debate all these years of, well, if we, if we stream something, right, equity during the whole, the you know, actor's equity through the whole pandemic, they did not want to know anything about recorded theater. They did not want their people to be paid. The only way you could really do it was if you were doing, um, you know, volunteer work for a benefit through the theater authority. If you got sanctioned by the theater authority, they didn't want a contract for virtual. They were just like, absolutely not the whole time. They, They did not want that to happen. And there's this whole feeling that if we allow people to do these recordings of theater, somehow we're going to ruin the institution of theater. And I think that there's something very exclusive about that and exclusive in a bad way, because you're not going and ruining your theater audience by providing that experience on streaming or a video. You're actually going and allowing people who would never normally get to see the piece to begin with to experience what it is that you're doing. And for me, I think that that's super important because people, if they don't know about theater, if they don't know what's going on in that Broadway theater or that wherever that theater might be, they may not go to see it because it's expensive and it's inconvenient to go to. But if they can see it at a much lower price point and learn that, oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, that's what it is. That's what Wicked is. That's what Family Opera is. You know, those are some nice really entry point theater pieces for, you know, just things that people will enjoy. 
They might say, well, you know, maybe I should go to New York. Maybe I should go to my city near me because I'd like to see that live. And then all of a sudden, it's a way of introducing people. So I, I am so against the idea that people think that a streamed performance or a recorded performance will ruin live theater. I think the two enhance each other. And I'm, really- I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I've had a lot of conversations with people. A lot of producers uh, are, are afraid that their their income is going to be cannibalized by by streaming it. They're going to lose audience members who are going to see it. But I, I think Legally Blonde was the first one of the first shows that actually did a, they did an MTV presentation of their show while they were running. Yeah. And although it didn't necessarily help or hurt, I don't think it helped or hurt the run in New York one way or the other. It did help the, the tour because people had seen it and were interested in it and the show was coming to town. It was going to be live. Even people that don't know theater if they're seeing a film show, they have some sense somewhere inside them that if I see this live, I bet it would be different. I mean, 100%. It, it builds it builds fans because the thing is, you're, those people who you're preventing from seeing it from streaming aren't people who are necessarily going to ever buy tickets for your show on Broadway. But if you show it to them that way, then all of a sudden they may want to come see it. Like this is what happened with Chicago. Remember, like Chicago was starting to dwindle on Broadway after a while, after a number of years. And then that film film came around and just completely ruined it, didn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that's what they said. Well, they said the second we release this film of Chicago, we're going to close Broadway because nobody's going to want to see it on stage. They just saw the film. Totally opposite. They built legions of fans around the world from that film. And that's why Chicago is running on Broadway right now. Well, I think think the fallacy in thinking with some of the some of the commercial producers is that they, they don't realize that all of this these people around the country who don't necessarily go to theater go to concerts mm-hmm. and they know the difference between a live performance and a recorded performance they they feel it they know it in their bones i mean if, yeah. if they they could they could watch a favorite a favorite artist on on tv um or on, on a film but if, if they're that artist comes to their their environs anywhere near where they are they rush to it the live performance is so different 100 percent. i agree with you completely I, i've had this conversation with other people who don't agree so. okay well that's that's kind of what i've been saying like throughout that whole process and it made me very happy to be able to present these these works and allow people like you just commented before about this group, right? Like normally, if you were going to do a meeting in your in your um, your office or a studio or something, it's like you'd be like, "All right, you better you better be here right now." It's like anybody can be anywhere. It's it's really exciting to have that. We don't have the geographical boundary anymore, keeping people apart. Um, so I think there's something really positive about that. Um, and Agreed. I think, yeah, and I think that you know the pandemic was was terrible, certainly for shows that were running. But it also allowed people in their whatever way they could to work on pieces that were in the process of being developed. And that's what, you know, a lot of people that I was dealing with were doing. And I, I appreciated that. So let's go back to how you spent your summer. <laughs> let's go back to, um, you've, told, you've talked a lot about, about your virtual um, it's Broadway virtual. What's the, it's called Broadway virtual. Yeah, Broadway virtual. You talked a lot about that. We understand how, how you came to form, form it, what your thinking was when you formed formed the company. And we got a little sense of, of some of the product that you produced. I don't know. Is there more product that you produced that you would want to tell us about? Because the next I, question is going to be We did an else. awful lot, but that was really what I spent 2020 doing. So that was 2020. 2021 really wasn't so much about that. The first part was we did a couple, we did the Writers Guild Awards in like the first part of the first quarter of 2021. But then 2021 became about a film. So I did a film uh, down in Miami. I lived down there from June 1st to September 1st. And we filmed down in the Keys. We were in Key Largo and we were in South Beach. And it was a two-character screenplay based on a play, actually a play that I wrote a number of years ago. So these Cuban filmmakers adapted it into a screenplay in Spanglish. So this was my my Latin stuff. I had done a show down there, an immersive show called Amparo, that was sponsored by Bacardi. Um, my partner's down there, and I executive produced that in 2019, I believe it was, 2018 and 2019. And that ran in downtown Miami as an immersive piece. So um, as a result of that, these folks down there ended up picking up this play and they translated it into a, um, into a screenplay. So now, now, I don't know, did we, did we clarify this? Isn't this, a, this is a piece that you wrote, isn't it? 
It was a piece that I wrote. Yeah. I mean, am I allowed to out you as a playwright? Yeah, I actually just said it was a piece that I wrote. I, I might have said it real fast though. I just want to make sure everybody does that because a lot. I don't think a lot of people know that you're a writer. So I'm a writer. Yeah. <laughs> I like to write, and I was just down there again. I just I did a, a Disney cabaret down in Miami um, in in December, early December. We ran that for like a month down in the Cultural Arts Center down there. So I wanted to do a cool Disney cabaret. It was like 16 songs. And I did all the patter. I brought it all together. And it was very educational. It was all about the background of the writers and, uh, and you know, the, the shows and the renaissance of Disney and the golden age of Disney and the Sherman brothers. And, you know, so hopefully when people left, they had a little better understanding of um, the background of some of those films that they loved and some of that music. But yeah, I love to write. There, you said it. And a lot of people don't even realize that Ken Davenport is, is a writer as well. A lot of writers become producers. I've, I've done it myself. Did you start off as a writer or, or were you producing at the, at the same time that you started writing? No, I've always been a, I mean, I've always liked to write, but I was never a writer, writer per se. I was, a, um, you know, I started producing theater about, you know, 22 years ago. I was right around 2000 that I started and I always liked to write. And then one day I said, Oh, I, I would like to write a play. I said, I should write a play. And I knew what I wanted to write about, but I just didn't really at the time. I was kind of running around. And then all of a sudden I was on a plane to, I, I, that's, well, that's not true. I wrote probably the first three scenes of the play. I knew exactly what those would be. And I knew what the end would be, but I didn't know what the rest of it would be. So I was on, I knew I had to get myself to do it, right? Like, I think writing for me has always been, I have to force myself and sit there. And once I sit there, it starts coming out. But if I have to like plan about it, it's it's like very easy to procrastinate and say, well, I don't have the time. I can't get to it. The, so, the, only, t the only time I ever actually clean the apartment is when I'm supposed to be writing. For sure. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So I, I had to force myself. I'm pretty good at forcing myself when the time comes. I could procrastinate a little bit. But if I want to do it, I'll be like, no, Jim, you have to sit your butt down and do this. So I was on several cross-country plane rides in a month period of time i think i was flying back and forth like three or four round trips to like california and vegas or something so i said i'm gonna instead of just watching movies on that plane or sleeping i'm gonna like write this rest of this darn play so i did that on that plane ride and it, i'm all about like getting it down like it doesn't have to be right it just has to be down on the on the word on my word document on my computer and get it done and then you know i developed it with um, a really cool director in new york right after that and I had this play that was pretty good and ready to go. We did a big workshop of it and it seemed to, you know, hit well. Um, and then it just kind of sat there. I got busy and you know, nothing was going on until the pandemic. And I was working with the Adrian Arsht Center down in Miami and they were looking for monologues to do with their series called The Arsht at Home, which is it's still online right now. They've got all their monologues up. So it's monologues from plays with um, local, local actors doing it. So they did a, one of the monologues from my play and then there were um, a couple other not-for-profit theaters down there who saw that in the Florida area, and they ended up doing uh, readings of it. They did virtual readings as benefits for their theaters. And then as a result of that, these two Cuban filmmakers saw the reading and they said, we'd like that to be the follow-up. They had a play that, uh, they had a movie that was picked up by HBO Max the last year and um, the year before. And they said this, they wanted this to be their follow-up. So, you know, I have to believe them. <laughs> <laughs> and then they did it. So we we filmed down in Key Largo and South Beach, and they do everything themselves. And they had this. They spent the next month and a half just editing the whole thing and putting it together. And they did it. I mean, they were just incredible. So now we're shot. We're we're in the film festivals now. So we're going to premiere premiere in the uh, the Miami Film Festival. They gave us this really amazing slot down there because it's a Miami film, and they want to um, support their own their own artists and whatnot. So we're going to do that. Key question. Did yes. you write? Did you write it as a as a screenplay? Or did you write it as a play? It was a, my play was a play, and the screenplay is quite a bit different than my play. It's very inspired by the play, but it, they they took a lot of they, a lot of liberties. It's much more cinematic now because they're not necessarily theater people. They're much more film people, and I'm much more a theater person. So they took my my play and they adapted it for the screen, and they and opened it a lot. Were you okay with it, or were there moments where you had to like take deep breaths? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. But, do I also, that? but I also understand, right, as a producer, I also understand, like, I've worked with a lot of writers who kind of can't 
give up the baby, right? And then you kind of say, all right, well, you know, I want this to be what I wrote, but I want to also give you as a screenplay writer, if it's a theater piece, that's different, then it's going to be my play. If it's a screenplay and I'm relying on these filmmakers to open it up, I'm, I'm going to give them license if I have conversations and I believe in them. Like I, I'm a, I have a screenwriting credit on it too, but it's really because I was the playwright. So they adapted it for the screen. And before we shot it, I sat down with them and I was staying at this fun apartment down in uh, downtown Miami, right by the water. And I sat oh, with them. Poor for you. <laughs> I sat with them for eight hours one day and we went like line by line through it. And anytime I had a problem, I was like, what are we doing here? You know, and I wasn't going to tell them they couldn't do stuff, but I was like, you're not being true to the feeling of this piece by doing this. So we how, have to did, talk. how did that sit with you in terms of you as a producer have probably had this conversation with other writers? Did it illuminate things for you or did it, or did you think, gee, I do this so much, I speak to writers so much better than these guys do or what was it like? Well, you, as you know, as I think everybody knows, I mean, I'll say it, but I'm pretty sure everybody knows it, but theater, right, it, the control is completely with the with the playwright. Like, you can't change a comma without the playwright agreeing. Screenplays are not that way. Screenplays, like, everybody has their hand in it, right? Like, the, the director, the screenwriters, the actors will change things. It just kind of is this weird mishmash, and I'm surprised that screenplays work as well as they do because they've got so many hands in there and they're not developed nearly the same way a play is developed. So I always find that really fascinating. But I, I over my years, I'm, I'm, you know, I guess nobody's perfect, but over all these years of working with writers, which I'd love to do so much, I think I'm like super respectful of writers, but I also come at it from uh, an educated audience member point of view. I think that that's how I approach working with writers. Because I'll say, I'm going to create this safe place for you to work. And we're going to agree to the parameters of the piece, right? Because if I didn't like the piece up front, I wouldn't be like, I love your piece. But if only you'll change it like like this for me. Like, that, that would be ridiculous, right? Unless they wanted to. But we would talk about it. And I would say, this is a concern. This is a concern. This is a concern. They, they could say, no, I don't like it. And then, all right, then I have the choice of not producing the show. But if we're on the same page... There, you have to build a trust, right? So I always try to build a trust with the writer that they know if I'm going to ask them to look at something, I can explain why it's a concern for me or why I don't understand it or whatever the thing might be. And they're free to say no, but I also want them to feel like comfortable and really listening because I don't just say things randomly. It's always with a real purpose. Otherwise, we err on the side of what they wanted. But if it's something that really jumps up and smacks me in the face, then I want to explain that in as respectful of a way as possible. And I've usually had pretty good luck with people kind of responding to that well. So This, uh, this is ter terrific stuff that, you, that you're sharing. I just want to let you know that there have been some exchanges in the chat that are hilarious oh, about, really? about, about pe what people do when they're, instead of writing. Um, one person, Nico is talking about how she does her tax taxes. She did her taxes when she was supposed to be writing. So, so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to save the chat. I'm going to save it to everybody. Send it to Good everybody. for it's, you, Nico. It's, it's pretty funny. You. Uncle Sam would be real happy about that. I've been invited to do cleaning down in North Carolina. I mean, it's, 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 it's great stuff. Well, um, there it. is a question, though, in, in, in the chat that I wanted to, to come back to. Um, sure. Tita Antares asks, if a theater has a play they want to produce hybrid, both in-person and streaming, what services does Broadway Virtual offer? Or another way of putting it would, would, would be, how would, you, how would you advise somebody to do that? Sure. So, I mean... I think that what Broadway virtual, the whole point of it was, right? I I did, I mean, obviously we didn't work for free, but I did it with an altruistic motive, right? I really wanted to help people continue their work. So we tried to um, fill in the gaps, right? Anytime I would pitch people, anytime we would have a meeting to explore, right? Because people didn't understand what we were going to do, right? They're like, are we going to do it on Zoom? Are we recording on Zoom? I was like, no, we're not. Well, we realized that's not a really good way to do it. You're going to get a piece of junk, you know, unless we're just doing a quick and dirty, like little conversation. Let's so do just, it just to, to clarify that we're talking about not filming it on Zoom. Zoom can often be a platform that people use for presenting it, but 
the, the, like, uh, no, actually, you can you can actually you can film on Zoom and then present it through OBS or or another another more sophisticated platform. You, you can very rarely, unless it was just the most simple kind of virtual table read. We wouldn't really record on Zoom. Um, what we would do is we would use Zoom as a collaboration tool. So that right. would be how the director and the virtual stage manager would communicate with the actors and everybody involved in the show. And then they would have their own individual camera, whether it was an iPhone or whatever it might be. They'd have that set up in front of them with the proper lighting. And then they would record themselves locally. And then they would have footage that was in great quality because that's a really good quality camera for the most part. And it would the sound would be really good. And they wouldn't have to worry about the Wi-Fi going out or the signal being bad. And, you know, it's just a much better recording. And then they would take that and we would go through how to do this. And then they would just upload that into the Dropbox. And then we would have our editor be able to check it out, make sure everything looked good. And then they would end up putting all that together with the director, like they're with the, I mean, the main director I worked with. She had a very, very keen eye and she was very specific about what she wanted. So she would be there with that editor doing it. She was, you know, they would spend 24 hours a day editing when they got down to the wire. So, um, so yeah, I mean, just to go back to what you're asking or um, whoever was asking that question. So we would offer the services that would be like, we're going to make sure that you don't have to worry about the technical aspects of doing this. You could just worry about your art, right? I don't need their director to know how to do the technical stuff. I don't need their stage manager to understand the technical. So we'd fill in all that for them. And then we would get it edited and we would do passes with the director to make sure that they liked the way it was turning out. Um, and, you know, it's everybody, it was a synergy. And then what we would do is if somebody wanted to present that, if they didn't have their own platform, I have the relationships with Broadway Virtual and Stellar Tickets and all those places. So I would set that all up with them. So I'd make sure we had the video uploaded. We'd be able to help them set the tickets up on the ticketing platform. If there was, if it was free, that was easier. We'd just send links and whatnot. If it was involving buying tickets for a, for a benefit or something like that, we would help them get that all set up and maintain it. So yeah, we were just the ones to kind of step in and fill in the gaps of whatever they needed to get to make their benefit, whatever those parameters were, be successful. So I might ask you for some help. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Greg, Gregory asks, what are your thoughts on virtual productions becoming full stage shows in the coming years? Kind of depends on the virtual production. Yeah, do you mean if it started out being done virtually and then somebody wants to bring it to the stage as a live performance? Gregory, is that, a, is, that a, is that pretty much what you're asking? Yep, that's pretty much it, because I did a virtual show, and I'm looking to have it staged fully by a professional theater company. So, yeah, just curious for your thoughts on that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we were kind of doing with a lot of the other... I mean, we did the benefits, but then I was also doing developmental work with different you know, um, um, commercial producers and whatnot who wanted to try out their pieces that they were developing. So we would do readings of it, or we would do productions of it that were fully edited and realized. But then, you know, the hope was always, the hope was always, people would always ask me, do you think that virtual is going to replace theater? I was like, no, 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 never will it replace theater in any way. I said, this is just another way of being creative and getting it out there. So if you wrote a play for the stage or a musical for the stage or whatever, this was a really interesting way to develop it and maybe work to get investors and show it to people with any, without any geographical um, you know, boundaries and whatnot. It was great because you, know, you didn't have to say to people, we're doing the reading at Pearl Studios. Are you going to fly in from California? I was like, no, you could watch it. You could stream it. We could allow you to have a link and watch it. And it was a beautiful thing rather than just some you know, recording. So yeah, the whole idea for me at least was always to get it so it was a developed piece and help it on its way to be on the stage. So, so that was always what we were looking at. So, so let's break this into two parts. A piece that was done on, on, in virtual, specifically in a, in a very basic way to, to be a, a, the, the equivalent of an industry reading versus, mm -hmm. versus a piece that was actually filmed and, and edited in post-production and has a certain amount of uh, production value to it. Do you think that both are both of them have a place or a, in the development process? Do you think that the piece that's been edited and, and beautifully shot and looks maybe like a little bit sort of like a film 
would that be hard for people to reimagine on stage or does it matter? I don't, I don't think so. I think it's just another level. And I think obviously the more polished you can make something, maybe that's better and maybe it's not. Like I, I have a couple of examples. So I have a commercial producer friend. It was two commercial producers who were friends and they were doing a reading of a play that they wanted to do in London. So they said to me, well, we just need your help because we want to do a live Zoom reading and we just want to do it live and invite people to the Zoom reading. And I said, please don't do that. Please, that's a terrible idea. Let's record it and then we'll stream it for you. They, no, 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 no. It has to be live. It has to be live. I don't want to do it recorded. No, no, no recording, nothing. I said, please don't. Please don't do it. It's was I the person you said this to? Because we had this conversation no. last year. No, it wasn't you, but I probably said to you because I said that to a lot of people. Yeah. This person, I had to give a little more of a sell job because he was like, it has to be live. That's what I said, nobody's going to know it's live. The only way they're going to know it's live is when somebody goes out in the middle of your thing and you can't get them back on and the, your audience is waiting for this person's camera to come back on or their internet to come back. I said, that's the only way they're going to know it's live. We'll make it so they completely don't know. So he said, I got to think about it. I've got to think about it. He, he said, all right. He goes, we'll do it. I don't like it, but I'll do it. The next day he calls me. He said, I am so glad that I talked to you about this. He said, I was on a reading that they were doing live on Zoom last night. It was in London. I was here and it went right out. It kept going right out all through it. They had to restart it like an hour later. It was a mess. I said, it's a mess. It's a mess. I've seen it too many times. So I'm sorry, that's the long story. But I, certainly, I remember that conversation with you so clearly. Oh, just so just so you know, I don't know if, if I ever talked to you about this, but we, I solved the, the live issue, the live problem by doing a breakout room at the end, of the, at the end, which was kind of a reception. So everybody who saw the, saw the plays, ticket buyers who bought the ticket that allowed them to come to the talkback, went into breakout rooms. Each room represent, was, a, was one of the plays that we did. And so mm -hmm. the actors and the writer and the director were in each of the rooms, and I had other people in the rooms as well. And people were going in and out of the rooms, and they they loved it. That was live, and 100%. that that was something that made a difference in terms of us having the live performance. Because with the theater authority, you can do one live live perform, you can do one performance, and then you can stream it for four days. And in order to find a point of difference between the stream and the the actual first presentation of the piece, which of course wasn't live. I, I wanted to have something that it was a point of difference. So I, I built in the, um, the reception afterwards. hundred percent. So, so that helped, yep. that helped me. Um, and also the other thing that, that gave it a, a lot of live feeling was I had people that were actively posting during the performances. And so people yes. were interacting. Yes. Yes. Well, that was one of the fun parts about like, when we were doing um, some of those broadcasts on Broadway on Demand and then Stellar Tickets, you could, it was filmed, but you could have people go and comment. You know, it's like yeah. some of the organizations wanted that and some didn't, which was interesting. So some were like, absolutely no comments. Other ones were like, comments for sure. And then there were like people saying, oh my God, look at who it is. And it was, it really made them feel like they were sitting at a table at a benefit talking to their neighbor rather than just watching something in their apartment alone. Right. It, it added to the feeling of community. I think. If I'm not mistaken, I think there were one or two speeches that were, that were, that were given live. Uh, I'm not sure how, how even. Yeah. Some of them, some, it depends, right. Anybody could do anything. So one of the things that we did, right. Like, like there's so many ways you can show these, events and one of them was you'd put you do like um you know ob studio something like that right you like can go and do it through the studio um software and you broadcast it and then you know i it was you can get a little fancy and whatnot you can have like a zoom everybody can be on the zoom and then you could show the the event and then you could bring the people into it i mean there was there are a lot of ways you could do a hybrid you could show the video but like also have the people live together in a zoom room so you could be kind of tricky if you wanted to. So it was it was an interesting learning curve, you know, and it's like we could do a lot of different things just based on what people wanted. Catherine Keats wants to know if you can give an example of what, what uh, something might cost. She wants to know what kind of budgets you were dealing with. I dealt with all, all budgets. Like you'd be surprised the, the uh, budgets we dealt with. I dealt with one, and I won't say what the organization was, but – 
we did a huge amount. Like I had a staff of like 40 people working on it. People were up like editing for like weeks on end. We interviewed 200 people from the organization. We had to get like 200 sets of footage and bring it together. It was crazy. Um, and that was probably in the range of $100,000. And then I've done things really small and easy. And, you know, I was always trying to keep the budget with what people wanted to do. And obviously you can't, I mean, there's a lot of work involved with this. It's really, it's very complicated if you do crazy stuff. And when you did some of the um, the simple ones, it would be, you know, a couple thousand dollars and that was it, right? So I wanted to be able to give people what they needed and what they were willing to spend. And clearly the more you spent, no matter what I gave people, it was a quality product, but clearly you can be a lot more complicated if you have a really big budget, because then I can bring in all the editors and we can do all the stuff and do all the effects and whatnot. So I, you know, I, I, it's not a good answer about how much it costs because it's really what it do depends, you, Yeah, it depends on what you're doing. And Catherine, I mean, does, I'm it, Catherine, about, does that help you though? Does that answer your question, Catherine? I mean, if I knew more about what they want, the person yeah, wants, does. I, can, I does. can better help. But, you know, I'm just going to say there's a I wide variety. The, I asked you the same question last year before we did our benefit, and you ballparked because I said we're doing short plays, like like five to ten minute plays. The new ballpark did it like two to $5,000 per play. Yeah, that's about right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A simple edit, yeah, a simple great. thing. Yeah, I mean, we had, you know, the one that I was telling you that was the expensive one. I mean, there were things flying in, there were people moving. It was like a choreographed experience, which is which is really, it gets real expensive. If you just want to do a nice, clean, simple edit, which is what we found most people wanted, right? That was Damp. Damps was pretty straightforward and simple. And there we had a couple I saw of that. Yeah, there were a couple of musicals involved. So those were a little more complicated because the musicals are harder to do in this medium than a play. But um, you know, we were we were able to figure that out. So it was pretty pretty reasonable for people. Ed Levy wants to know if you know Riverside.fm. Uh, okay, he says that they allow you to record locally. I'm not I'm not sure what it is either, but um, okay. it must be a platform of some sort. Cool. And Eric Rothman wants to know what do you think of the potential for virtual reality and other 3D and other new technologies for virtual theater. Oh, well, yeah, that's a, that's a whole thing, isn't it? I mean, everybody's sort of on the beginning stages of that and they're, they're getting excited about this virtual universe and whatnot. Um, sure. I mean, I think anything could work in, in virtual reality. I think we've got a little ways to go and getting it adopted and people interested, but I, I think we're going there. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. So I don't know. Did you, did you get your, your goggles? <laughs> Did you get your VR? Eric is the king of 3D. He's he's, okay. he's, the, he's the VR guy. Okay. Yeah, he's, I've had people like telling me you have to get the goggles. Go go into these rooms, and I was like, wow, so interesting. It really opens a whole new world. Exciting. And Walter Robinson wants to know: uh, Are there theaters set up to film live theater for film, or do you approach any theater and, and hope to convince them to, to rent the space? I think it's probably number two. Yeah, and there's also places during the pandemic for sure that had it set up. I know the Schubert's had a really great sound stage set up. I know the Triad has a play has their theater equipped to be able to film. Um, there's a few other ones around the city, I think, as well, who were who were pretty ready to do that. So yeah, I'm I don't know if they're still that way now, but um, they sure were for a while. Um, Catherine wants to also know, and this is a this is a tricky question. Um, wh- how what is the te- the tech that you use for vocals and music tracks? Sure. That's, that's the tricky one, but it's, um, you just have to know how to do it. And that's why we record locally. So what you do is you listen to the music in your earphones and you sing onto your iPhone as you're singing. So it's capturing you and it's capturing your voice, but it's not capturing the music. And then what happens is we take the track and we edit it together with the video and the vocal, and then we create its own individual track and then we go and if say it's a you know musical with a lot of other scenes to it right so you're going to do each song like that and then you go and you have all the other scenes that are the non-musical scenes and you go and you kind of splice them all together but you create a, a, a an individual song first 
So when we did, um, I had done a benefit and our, my dear Mary Davis was a part of that with us. We did a benefit for Broadway Cares um, with Bill Russell and Janet Hood's Elegies for Angels, Punks and Raging Queens. And we had 51 Broadway stars, including like Nathan Lane and Fran Drescher, and, you know, just this whole host of incredible people. And they did Bill and Janet's amazing show, uh, Elegies. So when we did that, we, we dealt with these 51 stars of various skill levels, most of them not that high. And we did these songs, you know, it's like, it's a lot of monologues if you're not familiar with the show, but then there's about 12 songs in it. So that's exactly how we did it. So we would go, we recorded the tracks in the studio, Janet played and um, her, her amazing band. Then we mixed that. So we had a track, we sent that to the, uh, to the people singing. They listened in their headphones. They sang onto their iPhone while they were hearing the music, but that was not being recorded, only their voice was. And then we sent it to our editor and he edited the track from the studio along with the video and the, um, the recording of the song, the lyrics together. And then we had one piece and then we used that final piece to edit into the film. So it's a lot of editing when you do music. <laughs> Related to your question, Catherine, I will, I will say that we have not figured out a way to, to do, to do music live. It has to be recorded. Um, we have, Taken the risk that, that Jim Sills says not to take, and we've done we've done play readings um, that have been live, um, and we've had very we had success. We haven't had any any real problems with it. Um, you can, Bob, but what? But as a company, like my butt is on the line, right? If I don't give them a great reading, they may say we don't care. They'll care, <laughs> so I can't put my company on the line. And give them something that's shoddy, right? Well, like, it's just by, by way of explaining how the, how we've managed to do our play reading series virtually, but we have not done our musical 100%. reading series virtually. We, 100%. We just, the, the, the cost of doing the musicals reading series virtually is just beyond what we have. We don't have it. We don't have that money. Super expensive. Absolutely. Um, I'm looking to see if there's other questions. Uh, Liz Schuller, do you think there's a path that leads equity ever embracing virtual and in fact, including it in equity contracts at some point in the future. Urgh. Gosh, I don't know, right? It's like, it's such a... It's I don't such think a there's a path because, because of SAG. I think it's not equity. Equity wants to do that. But I think SAG has put their foot down and said virtual and new media is their domain. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're... It's hard, right? They're like... they're. They're not loving the idea. <laughs> they're not. They're not people who are really into that. So it's it's a little tricky. Um, I'm not sure of you know where that's going to go, but but they haven't been up until now. And if they didn't like doing it in the pandemic, you know, I, I honestly believe that they would probably come around at some point. I thought it would take a while, but I expected they would figure it out. But but they didn't. <laughs> so I don't know. No, it became it became a um, a, pull, a tug of war between between SAG and Equity. SAG is easy to work with, though. I mean, it's it's, it's not it's not a bad thing if you have to go on a SAG contract. They're 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 nice people and they're, they're easy to work with. So, let me see if there's any other questions in the chat. Well, other than people thanking you, oh, when unions, uh, Eric Rothman says, when unions become strict about avoiding new technologies, it provides an opening for non-union new talent. So that is that is in general a, 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 an issue that. For, for equity and for equity actors is that when things become too difficult for a producer, there is always the possibility that they're going to look into doing it non-equity. So it's kind of a lose-lose. But uh, that, that's, the way it, that, that's the way it is. And I know equity is still working on their contracts and getting things uh, in line and uh, getting prepared for the new normal, that's this, which is, I think we're facing now. I think we're coming coming to an end of COVID, guys. I think we really are. I think we're going to be back to live performance, but I will still be doing this community gathering on virtual every Friday at five o'clock. I think that we've we've uh, gotten some great information and great insights from Jim Jim Kirsten. Thank you, Jim. It's been some, some surprises. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that we were going to start off where we started, but uh, no, you just never know what's going to happen, right, Bob? It, it's stuff that that needs to be said and is worth <laughs> saying, and. Uh, I hope we said things in a sensitive way, in a way that people could understand. I want to thank you, Jim. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Everything is always from a good place, right? So yeah. I think that we have to be honest and just talk, you know, openly sometimes. So anyway. 
So I thank you for that. It's a conversation that I'm going to be digging deep, deep uh, diving in much more deeply next Friday. I've got some good people who are going to be guiding that conversation. Adam Heidman and Tara. I want to thank everybody <clears throat> for being with us today. I want to thank Jim for joining us. We're going to basically. I want to remind everybody what I remind you of every week. We do this for free. If you, if it needs to be free for you, we do have bills to pay. We do have to keep running. So do consider giving a donation. Uh, go to truedonate.com, T-R-U-Donate.com, and um, support us, viewers. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I hope I hope you enjoyed being with us. Consider joining us on Friday Live. Send an email to me at T-R-U-N-L-T-D at AOL.com, T-R-U-N-L-T-D at AOL.com, and ask me to put you on the Zoom list, and we'll send you the Zoom link every week so you can be with us while while the conversation is happening. Meanwhile, consider subscribing to the, the to the True Channel because it actually helps us. And uh, I think that's it, guys. Hope you'll be with us next week for Is the Great White Way Getting a Little Less White? We need to talk about something. We need to talk about something. We need to talk about something. We need to talk about anything at Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an electric cast production. Electric acid.